Blog Talk Radio. Brie, I am a fourth generation McMahon. I don't even think you understand what that means. I mean, and what are you? Who are you, Brie? You're nothing. You are nothing more than a wannabe reality star who abandoned her injured husband, stole the spotlight from her sister just to make a name off of me at SummerSlam. You need to go look in the mirror, Brie, and you know what you'll see? You'll see a selfish, conceited shell of a woman. Who's the piece of trash now, Brie? You say you're going to embarrass me at SummerSlam? Well, guess what? I'm embarrassed standing here right now. I'm embarrassed just to be in the same ring as you. And at SummerSlam, I'm going to put an end to your pathetic attempt to make history. At SummerSlam, I am going to tear your heart out. Oh. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. Nikki Bella now. What is, what is she doing here? Free to have a death. A pedigree? Oh my God! Stephanie McMahon with a pedigree on Nikki Bella as her her sister Free watches on helplessly. that yes oh whoa whoa that hit officer of the company oh, oh my gosh and look out oh. Stephanie now with a little preview of SummerSlam perhaps King Pedigree quite well. Oh my gosh, is this is this what we're gonna see at SummerSlam? I think we just got a preview, King. Stephanie McMahon and the authority literally ruling the ring right now. Power couple could get even more powerful. And good evening, everybody, and welcome to the King Jordan Radio Show for Tuesday, August 5, 2014. This is King Jordan you're listening to. 
Okay, before we get into our special uh, show, let's uh, talk about uh, some upcoming shows. Uh, next week we will have Frank Taffy on, former friend of George Zimmerman, former ex-friend, I should say. And then the week after that we will have Joey Jackson and, of course, the MJ birthday tribute is still on the way. Ladies and gentlemen, let's introduce our panel of guests. First of all, from the from Chicago, he is our wrestling insider. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one and only Double J, JJ. Good evening, JJ, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? What's up, King? Like you said, so much to get into. Uh, Sting is going to be making an appearance at the SummerSlam panel. TNA is taping their second New York tapings tonight. That's where we shall see the return of uh, Tajiri. Uh, the WWE Network second quarter numbers are in. They're not fantastic, but they're not horrible either. Uh, lots to get into. Uh, no question. Let's bring in our other guest, uh from the wrestling hot seat, the one and only Dominic Valente. Good evening, Dominic. How are you? How you doing, King? How's everything? What's up, JJ? What's up, oh, Dominic? Thanks Before we go back. anywhere, do you have your list for today? Uh, I guess I do. Okay, that of course courtesy of the wrestling hot seat at two one two six two nine nineteen hundred. So check All right, we got a lot of good ones. We got Unico. Sweet Stan Lane, Pat Tanaka, um, Boss Hog, The Bruiser. That's not Dick the Bruiser. That's an indie guy called The Bruiser. Uh, we also got Turbina from Mexico, Tomohiko Ishikawa from Japan, Kendo Kashin, Hideki Hosaka, Mac Johnson, Danny DeMonto, and Downtown Dave Dynasty. Celebrities, we got Neil Armstrong, Rick Derringer, Maureen McCormick from the Brady Bunch, Patrick Ewing, uh, Lonnie Anderson, Jonathan Silverman, and the day in wrestling history, August 5th, 1956. Sam Steamboat and Count Billy Varga defeated Toss Togo and Ed Gardenia in Honolulu, Hawaii to win the Hawaiian Tag Team titles. That had to be a good one. <laughs> Most certainly it did. Um, okay, the uh, the big news, of course, uh, JJ um, is, of course, uh, we got SummerSlam. We've got some quarterly hour breakdown. We got a Paul Heyman DVD. Uh, let's start with the uh, Paul Heyman DVD. Oh, man. I mean, uh, it was just released today, and I just heard, actually, Paul Heyman do an interview with uh, the MMA Hour with Ariel uh, Helwani, in which he went to uh, discuss with uh, Paul Heyman his career so far, the DVD, MMA, uh, CM Punk, and Brock Lesnar, and Heyman. I mean, unbelievable. The, the stories that uh, he goes through with uh, Ariel it's just fantastic, but of course they are promoting the DVD. The DVD is titled, Ladies and Gentlemen, My Name is Paul Heyman. They spoke about how if you order the, or if you purchase the regular standard DVD, you will get an extra that uh, talks about ECW, and if you purchase the Blu-ray special, 
there is an extra added story of Stephanie McMahon uh, giving uh, a very uh, emotional story between uh, her and Paul Heyman that was very personal. In fact, Heyman said that he was very surprised that Stephanie brought it up in the DVD because it was a private conversation between the two of them. So it's kind of uh, interesting to me. I wonder whose idea it was that they would have two exclusives, one on the standard DVD and one on the Blu-ray, and you can only see them on you know, the Blu-ray or the DVD. They're not in both. You can't, uh, if you get the Blu-ray, you're not going to get the story about ECW. That's a, a bonus that will only be a part of the standard DVD. So I found that to be very interesting that you have to get both but uh it, sh- it should be amazing uh Heyman what a mind this guy has I mean he really went into details he even talked believe it or not uh in the interview with the MMA hour they spoke about TNA and uh, their current standings losing Spike TV and you know what they should do and, you know, Heyman said, you know, the number one thing that, that uh, TNA has going for them is they have content. They have about 12 years' worth of content. And the uh, other hand, number two, they just need finance. And, well, since the Carters are running things, they have the money to, you know, spend or waste. Uh, but the one thing that they are missing, number three, is distribution. And, you know, without a television show without Spike TV to distribute, you know, TNA wrestling to the audience, to that million of viewers who are watching, you know, it's going to hurt them. In fact, it was one of the reasons why he said ECW closed down, you know, except their problem was also finances. So it wasn't just the distribution and losing Spike then, but, you know, losing Spike hurt them, and then not having the, the backing also pretty much sealed the end of ECW. But right now, TNA, believe it or not, he said, I mean, it wouldn't surprise them if, you know, something happens and maybe they're still around another year or another 10 years. You know, it all depends, you know, what they do and what their long-term goals are for the company. And he says one of the main problems, though, with TNA right now especially is, you know, they spent so many years promoting WWE talent. You know, when talent left WWE, they came to TNA and they immediately put them in the spotlight as opposed to, you know, making their own TNA stars and, you know, having them skyrocket and having their own sort of brand be recognizable. And even right now with these New York shows, as great as they are, the fan response has been nothing but positive. One of the problems with these New York shows is it does feel kind of like an ECW nostalgic show in which here you are in TNA and they're not chanting TNA they're chanting ECW, you know, a company that went out of business over you know, 10 years ago. That's, that's not what you want. You want the fans chanting TNA. You want TNA to be established. So it, it's kind of a difficult position they're in. But uh, some uh, truly amazing stories, and uh, he did talk about CM Punk, and this is coming from Paul Heyman. He said that probably right now, CM Punk's goal, you know, right now he's very driven, his mind is made up, his heart, his soul is based on never going back into wrestling as of right now, as of today. I mean, who, what happens tomorrow, a month from now, a year from now, you know, anything could change, you never say never, but as of today, you know, if Punk goes back to wrestling, in Punk's view, he's a failure because he has to make it outside of wrestling now. He put wrestling behind him. 
when he burned his bridges by walking out on his contract. And, then, you know, that's just – it's unfortunate, but that's the, the fact right now. The WWE reached out to Punk many times. They reached out when they came back to Chicago. They reached out for WrestleMania. And at this point, WWE is done reaching out. You know, his contract is officially up. So they don't really need Punk right now. They don't want to be the first ones to be calling Punk saying, okay, we want you come back. And at the same token, Punk, who left them, he doesn't want to go crawling back to them. So, you know, it's a very uh, a matter of principle and pride and the fact that he feels that he doesn't need them right now. He wants to make it on his own. And the WWE, I mean, they're the WWE. They can survive. They survived without Hogan. They survived without Brett. They survived without Warrior. They survived without Bruno. And they did just fine. They survived without Austin. They survived without Rock. And they continue to move on. They're going to survive without Punk. But do they want Punk? As of right now, no. But in the future, maybe that could change. Maybe in the future, they think that they could make money with Punk. And if Punk feels that, you know, the time is right, if, you know, he can bury the hatchet and let things go, that, you know, it's possible. I mean, Heyman went into great detail at about, uh, in what, 2006, when he stepped away from the WWE, there was no way in hell. He said, I would bet my nuts that I would never step into a WWE office and work for them again. And in 2010, when uh, the WWE, they called him up to do some, you know, voiceover work, some behind-the-scenes, you know, vintages for, you know, DVD releases and things like that. And he was doing that at the time. But to appear, you know, working for them on camera and to, you know, do these live shows and to appear as, you know, backstage as an agent or as a writer, those days were done. There was no way in hell Heyman would do that. And yet... Once he started talking to them and they found a way to sort of manipulate him and to say, well, you know, your kids, wouldn't you want your kids to see you on TV again, you know, working with Brock Lesnar? And, you know, they said, you know, wouldn't it be great to bring them to a WrestleMania? And, you know, he's thinking, damn it. I, I, you know, my kids were saying that when Lesnar made his return, I think we all remember that promo Lesnar did without Paul Heyman. When it was just Lesnar, John Laurinaitis, and Triple H, and it was just awful. Lesnar out there talking just didn't work. And Lesnar went straight to Vince and says, you need to make an offer to Heyman that he can't refuse. And sure enough, not even, what, a week later, we saw Paul Heyman on WWE television again. It was just the right circumstance. And that's what's going to happen with Punk. It just needs to be the right circumstance. A lot of this heat needs to cool over because right now both sides are had enough of each other. Do you agree, Dominic? Well, uh, I don't know if we're going to see Punk back. He, he said you'll never, ever see me in any wrestling ring again. That's so maybe true. his career is done. Yeah. I don't know. I think WWE is really missing him. Um, it could be yes. a power play where he might want more money and WWE doesn't want to give him more. I don't know. It could be a lot of things. But for him just to be walking out like he did um, and just like almost saying, fuck it, I don't want to be bothered no more. I don't know. That It just don't seem right. So, I don't know. Maybe I've he's got, got an ulterior motive for doing that, for uh, for walking out. Maybe maybe it's money. Maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he wants a different kind of a push or something. Could be anything. 
Could be anything. Well, another guy who just recently, uh, well, uh, contract just ran up is a good old JR. And I have a good clip. And uh, the question is, did Jim Ross deserve better? Let's take a listen and talk on the other side. And finally, this week's sad tweet comes from at JR's BBQ. Good old JR Jim Ross on Tuesday tweeted the following. He said, tomorrow is my last legal day with WWE. It was a great 21-year run. Best business decision ever was coming to WWE in 1993. Grateful to all involved. Uh, Ross is easily the best play-by-play man in the history of wrestling, in my opinion. Uh, Vince tried to replace him on commentary with Joey Styles and ended up going right back to JR. He tried the same thing with Jonathan Coachman, went right back to JR. Uh, When they wanted help to get a big match over at WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker, Undertaker against Triple H, who did they call in? Good old JR. He also worked as the head of talent relations during his time there. He's responsible for signing some pretty big names. Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock... Mick Foley, who without Ross pushing for him likely never would have gotten a second look from Vince McMahon. Uh, He was fired, uh, both legit fired and and in storyline, so many times I lost count. Humiliated in front of the world on countless occasions. Mocked on commentary, even to this day. The SummerSlam video game panel debacle last year was his undoing. Uh, I think that just gave Vince McMahon a reason to get rid of the guy that he was searching for. Uh, They let him retire with dignity, but in reality, he got fired. He's admitted as much since then. Ric Flair, who was the cause of that whole thing, is now back in the WWE family with a brand new contract. Uh, Good for him. I hope he's got his shit together now. I know he had a rough year with his son dying and all, but it just seems unfair that Flair is back. And same offer appears to have not been extended to JR. Uh, I'm not even sure he would want to come back now, quite frankly. He's got a lot of other projects on his plate, some of which he probably wouldn't be allowed to do if he was still under contract to WWE. Uh, He's got his podcast, his one-man show. He's finally working on a book. He's doing work for Fox Sports. He may be doing something soon in MMA. He's keeping busy. But it's still fucked up to me that the greatest wrestling commentator alive is relegated to... Uh, boxing and MMA at a time when wrestling needs him now more than ever. Uh, The commentary uh, most weeks is atrocious, and I don't know that bringing back JR would even change that. Can you imagine Jim Ross having to constantly plug Twitter hashtags for three hours on Monday night and all the crap they have Michael Cole doing week after week? Still, though, I mean, they benched their best player for so long I think, at the expense of their own product, and that's at least part of the reason why a lot of fans have abandoned it. You know, the, Great announcing can go a long way when it comes to telling uh, a story and selling you on matches, selling you on pay-per-views and network subscriptions, and just your overall enjoyment of the product. And for the people who think I'm out of my freaking mind saying the announcing is what's driving away wrestling fans, I'm not saying that's the only thing. But the announcing became that much more important when Raw expanded from two hours to three, which took place two years ago this week, by the way. Uh, It's been two years of three-hour Raws, and my mind has not changed. I'll say the same thing now that I said back then. Three hours is just too damn long. You know, WCW could not keep Nitro interesting enough for three hours at their peak when wrestling was still hot. 
Think about all the filler and the bad comedy we've had to sit through at a time when wrestling is not nearly as hot as it was back then. So when the announcers are on their A game, they can be very good. But when they're not, which is often, they can make the show insufferable. And all it does is make me appreciate a guy like Jim Ross even more and realize that, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. I, I know he was valuable to that company. I know he wore a lot of, of hats, not just the black hat. He did a lot of different things for them behind the scenes. I just didn't realize how valuable he was until he wasn't there anymore. So it was a sad tweet just because it was an official end to his uh, WWE run. But if he should end up here in this at some point. Best of luck to JR in whatever he does. I shall eat a $2 steak drenched in barbecue for dinner tonight in your honor, sir. Okay, JJ, let's go to you first on this. So what is your thoughts on Jim Ross and the commentary you just heard? Well, I think we all remember the uh, last year, the 2K14 panel and what were Ric Flair kind of going off subject and going off script, so to speak. And uh, a lot of people blamed uh, Jim Ross for that since he was the host of that uh, panel. But at the same time, the video game executives over at THQ, or if, I don't know if it was THQ or if it was at 2K at that I guess it was 2K at that point. They were happy with it. 2K didn't complain that, uh, you know, oh, you know, this guy was going nonstop about, you know, wrestling and stuff. They were happy with it. They enjoyed it. They were entertained by Ric Flair. It was a, uh, an awesome moment with Flair and Foley, and uh, Brian was there, Austin was there, and it was a lot of fun. But, of course, the WWE, you know, they wanted things to go a certain way, and the, 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 minute, it, the minute it didn't happen, they took it out on Jim Ross. And, unfortunately, at that time, you know, they let uh, Jim Ross go, and they didn't have him appear uh, for anything at that point. He was pretty much done. I mean, uh, legally, you know, as, as he just pointed out, Jim Ross tweeted recently that his last, you know, official, you know, contracted legal day to do anything or with the company, that just recently ended, and, you know, 21 years, and that's it. It's over. Thank you for your time, and, you know, good luck on your future endeavors. But uh, as he pointed out, you, you can't really replace Jim Ross. And, you know, Michael Cole, a lot of people give him a hard time. I've given him a hard time. Everybody gives him a hard time. You know, he's doing, you know, the best he can. He's not Jim Ross. He could never be Jim Ross. You know, you could say Jim Ross could never be Gorilla Monsoon. Gorilla Monsoon could never be, you know, you know, just go off down the list further and further. But, uh, you know, Jim Ross was special in the Attitude Era. I don't know if the Attitude Era would have been as exciting if you didn't have Jim Ross screaming, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, you know, or Bot God. Or, you know, Jim Ross was just unbelievable. He really, you know, made you feel what was going on in the ring, and he did a great job telling the stories and helping the viewers understand what was going on and, you know, reacting to moments. And that's one thing that's lacking today with Cole and uh, JBL and Lawler. You know, when they react to things, it's just, we kind of lost that feeling of that genuine excitement, that genuine, you know, feeling that, you know, you're on this amazing journey, and we don't feel that. In fact, when I was, you know, uh, listening to that Paul Heyman interview with Ariel at Hawani, and Jim Ra or Paul Heyman said that, you know, look at a guy in MMA, someone like a Joe Rogan, for a lot of people who maybe don't know, Joe Rogan does uh, the announcing for the UFC fights, the pay-per-views, he'll interview a lot of the fighters, and Joe Rogan brings a really 
great excitement, you know. When he watches a fight, he goes, damn, that was a great fighter. He, he's really into it. He makes you feel pumped about what you're watching. And, you know, I don't feel pumped at all, you know, listening to Michael Cole. And there'll be times where Cole's arguing with uh, JBL, and then JBL says, well, you know, why don't you just shut up, Cole? And he will. Michael Cole will literally go silent and have JBL try to carry the match and, you know, try to talk. And, you know, you realize, well, it's not as easy as it looks. And, you know, JBL struggling out there. And meanwhile, we as fans are listening to this horrible debacle that's going on between Cole and, you know, JBL ringside. And we've got to suffer through it as opposed to listening and them calling the match. You know, and it's, it's unfortunate. And at the same time, I think it's kind of interesting that he pointed out that could you imagine Jim Ross, you know, plugging Twitter and saying, oh, well, use the hashtag uh, WWE Raw, use the hashtag WWE Network, and, oh, 999 is trending worldwide on Twitter. You know, I don't know if I could, you know, see that. You know, Jim Ross, he, I guess, you know, he's more of that old school, and I don't know if that mixes with today's audience, which is all, you know, now and current and the technology and the digital era that we're in. But at the same time, I do think uh, wrestling uh, desperately need someone with the passion of a Jim Ross. And uh, it, I don't think we have that right now, obviously, and I hope that I don't know who will be announcing five to ten years from now. There's a lot of guys over in NXT. There's that uh, Brian Saxton. There's uh, Tom Phillips. There's Renee Young. There's even William Regal, who, you know, they're doing the announcing for NXT and they kind of take turns every couple weeks or so. But, uh, you know, they're the future of announcing. And uh, I kind of wish that uh, they would replace Cole and Lawler and, you know, JBL because what's going on right now is just awful. It's just hard to sit through and listen. I mean, it's not bad all the time. There are times when I think Cole, you know, steps up a bit where, you know, maybe he'll try to sell something, you know, as best as he can. And, you know, at times like that, it works. But more often than not, you know, I just feel like muting the TV just because I feel bored. And that's the last thing you want, especially now when wrestling, you know, is kind of going through a peak and it has its highs and lows. Viewers are tuning out. Uh, Last week, the the main event between Stephanie and Brie on Raw, it lost uh, a couple, you know, 100,000 viewers. And, you know, they tried it again this week. They had the Divas main event again. And, uh, you know, we're just missing that special feeling that, okay, I'm really hooked into this. You know, even though it's the Divas, even though it's, you know, Brie Bella in the main event on Monday Night Raw, it helps having that extra person there to kind of guide you through what's going on and make you feel like it's special and that what you're seeing actually matters. And we don't really have that right now, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I got to agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, Dominic, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, how can they let good old JR go? Uh, Jim Ross is one of the greatest voices of wrestling, right there with Gordon Soley and Mike Tanay. And the thing about JR, he called the action in the ring. The announced crew that they got now, Monday, Smack, Monday on Raw and Friday on SmackDown, they're telling jokes, they're talking about this. JBL has given us what he thinks is a history lesson. Nobody's calling the, the action in the ring. Yeah. It's like these guys it's are right. in there 
wrestling for a promotion on an indie show where there's no announcing, um, and just they're going out there just for their moves. And it's more of a conversation between the three guys than them actually talking about the match going on in the ring. That's right. I and mean, they'll never get confused with a team of uh, Bobby DeBrainy and Gorilla Monsoon. Oh, they were uh, great. Paul and they were and, funny, uh, and they called the match that was going on. They called the match that was going on, and, uh, you know, it's not like Jim Ross can't do it anymore. In fact, right, they, still uh, I have a, a clip of him calling some uh, basket, uh, uh, boxing for the Fox Sports Network. Let's take a listen. This is back in the end. Uh, let's evaluate it on the other side. It is loud. It is exciting here in Fort West, Texas. What a night. And thank you, for, ladies and gentlemen, for being with us here on Memorial Day. What better place would you want to be than right here? Some of these men and women are just home from Afghanistan, and we're going to entertain them and you here tonight. I'm Jim Ross, alongside of, of Dave Montipo. And ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a spectacular night. Ladies and gentlemen, live here in Fort Bliss, a ladies amateur match. That young lady, 17 years of age, all the way from Bronx, New York. They're not burning any daylight here with a two-minute round. Well, Adisa gets back to high school on Tuesday, or Wednesday, I guess it will be, with her travel. She'll have something to talk about in history class. It's been a good one. Oh, what a left. Beautiful left hand by Love. No love in the left. Yeah, Nader said he's not coming here to lose. Profound statement, perhaps, but uh, nonetheless, looking for a knockout tonight. The young man with a fringe on his tights. Got to be tough today to wear fringe. That's right. But, but Nader's tough. He's $2 stake tough as he comes back with a combination. Who's going to land the big one? Who's going to put the other two? I got to believe somebody's going down here. Again, looking for that left hand, Keandre Gibson. He's not thinking St. Louis with good ribs and a shot. That was a body shot in the abdomen. That's the end of the fight. And what an abrupt ending with a body shot. A horrific body shot that took the air right out of John Nader. DeAndre Gibson found his range, found his rhythm, and found that he's 10-0-1 in his professional career. A very impressive victory for the charismatic young welterweight. you got to love a guy that comes to the ring in a black hat. I saw fight in his eyes yesterday. I tried to converse with him, Dave, and he really was in the conversational mood. He wanted to make sure you weren't fighting before he uh, decided to get yeah. friendly. I, I, I left the Walter Waits in the eighth grade, or the fourth grade. Ryan Carl, 140-pound nose tackle in high school. Played linebacker, played defensive back. Loved the contact. And he showed the contact here. A right hand. Carl is hungry. The Cowboy. The Cowboy is bringing me any good luck thus far. Brian Carl, again, his pro debut is hungry. He's uh, only been married a year. He's got a baby on the way now. He's got to make a living in this uh, pugilistic world, Dave. 
Ryan Carl's got a, a devastating right. He just landed it again. Carl turned it on. Left and right. Mitchell has no answer. These motors close to calling it. Looking close. And that's it. That's it. The Texan debuts. Gets paid. He wins. They go on the way. Can't beat it for him. Life is good for Ryan Cowboy Carl. The champion reeling there momentarily and now fighting back against uh, Rocky Juarez. Juarez, his given name is Rocky on his birth certificate. It's not a boxing name. Juarez says he's going to win or he's going home. The 34-year-old trying to battle back in. Good body shot. Let's not forget that Juarez are has uh, 21 knockouts in his career of his 29 victories. You mentioned in the meeting yesterday, he was the, he reminded us of the, he's the Minnesota Vikings of the Buffalo Bills of boxing. Yeah, he's had so many chances to get to the big one and, and then not get over the top. Exactly, a dominating right hand. Like he said, he camps on the front porch. Waits for to walk out the door. He could get it. That took some starch out of a uh, little bit of the barbecue sauce out of uh, Rene Alvarado with that right hand. And let's see if The Rock can, can create more offense with his right hand. Bayamon, Puerto Rico. Dave will get a tan. Let's see what we can, if we can smell what The Rock is cooking in this round. Rock has found a home for his left on Alvarez's face. This can't be poor somewhere. I think he's moved from the front porch into the living room. Because of his birth certificate. His name is Rocky. He was born to be a fighter. But he also said very clearly to us, if I don't win this fight, I'm done. Rocky's corner very uh, distinct in telling The Rock that we know you're tired. We know you're tired. But keep the pressure on. Keep punching. Keep going. And that's what we're seeing here from uh, Warren. He had one loaded. He got, he got the left hand. And another right hand. Alvarez in trouble. A sharp left right to the nose. And the left hand covered Alvarado sternly at 45 seconds. The Rock needs a flurry. He needs a flurry to build the momentum. To score as much as he can. To put this thing either out of reach or closer. Alvarado is fighting with a great sense of urgency. He had a good 11th round. Oh, oh, what a right hand. A right hand by Rocky Juarez. I don't know how Alvarado stayed upright, but he did. They're exchanging this crowd on their feet, and rightfully so, as we just see a hell of a fight. All three for your winner by unanimous decision. And new WBC Silver Featherweight Champion, Rocky Wadi! Finally, the heartbreak ends, save for Rocky Juarez. The 34-year-old has found new life in the game of the sweet science. Oh, my God. He does not sound like he lost a beat, KJ. What is your take on hearing that? 
Oh, man, I mean, I thought it was back in, you know, 1999. You know, you're talking about The Rock, and can you smell what The Rock is cooking? You can hear the fans chanting Rocky. I mean, I thought I was listening to Monday Night Raw. I mean, uh, you know, that's, you know, classic Jim Ross. I mean, you know, his, his passion. You can hear his passion. You can hear, you know, his knowledge and when he talks and when he, you know, is just describing the punches and the hits, and he talks about how horrific and devastating, and, you know, he's into it. You know, he's selling it. You know, he's he's genuinely excited by the fight he's, you know, seeing, and he's able to, you know, you know convince fans who are, you know, watching the fights and listening on, you know, pay-per-view or at home, you know, watching on the television, that, you know, this is a big moment. You know, he's really selling it, you know, good. And it's just, you know, you're into it. You're into the fight. And, again, that's something that, you know, we're lacking right now in the WWE with the current announcers. And it's something that Jim Ross was always good at. You know, back in the Attitude Era days, man, there was nobody better than Jim Ross. And even now with boxing, I mean, it's a little different. I'm not a boxing fan. I'm barely an MMA fan. You know, wrestling's always been my bread and butter. But, uh you know, it, it was cool to hear him. You know, I had that uh, nostalgic feeling. Like I said, I was watching Monday Night Raw from 1999. You know, it was just great to hear him. You know, he, he sounded like he hadn't missed uh, a day in his life. I mean, he was, he was great. Uh, Dominic, your take. Yeah, Jim Ross really got into that. That's the way Jim Ross is. He He gets so involved in whatever he's doing or whatever he's calling that you know, if he's got another announcer with him, Jim, the, the other guy can't get a word in edgewise because Jim Ross has that passion for announcing. I mean, Jim Ross could be announcing tiddlywinks or ping pong, and he'll still have that passion and make that seem like it's the World Series or it's WrestleMania or it's the Stanley Cup. That's yeah. just Jim Ross's style, and he's he's unbelievable. Gordon Soley was great in his day, maybe one of the one of the best announcers. But Gordon Soley was laid back. But Jim Ross, when he gets excited, he gets he gets excited, and he sounds like the top of his head is going to come flying off. Jr. Jr. is the man, and right now they need somebody like Jim Ross in WWE. They need good old Jr. back. He can do it. But even if I was asked and I was Jim Ross, I would say, go fuck yourself. I'm tired of your bullshit. I'm done. Yeah. I mean, that's true. You know, in Easton Hall and uh, TNA, if uh, they, they could ever get him. Uh, some TNA, miracle, I think uh, it would work with Mike Tanay and Taz. I think that would work. Oh. But if they, they bring work together, JR back to Raw, who are they going to get rid of? JBL? Well, Cole? like JJ said, they wanted it, and the tape said that they wanted an excuse to get rid of him. It sounds yeah, like. So, um, Why are they holding JR responsible for what Ric Flair did? That That's the part that baffles me. He's not his brother's keeper. When you're an announcer, it's not like an athlete. You don't lose it. I mean, look at the guy from the Dodgers. He's 85 years old, and, and he announced that he's coming back next year for the 86th, I think, like 65th uh, season. He was there when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn, for heaven's sake. Yeah, so, yeah, yep. 
men stinks out with the old in with the new that doesn't really apply uh nope. unless you know they have a, a voice problem and uh it, it, that's really a shame because jim ross I think that should was not just be a WWE excuse to get rid of jim ross because yeah. he didn't keep an eye on flair and listen to what flair said and now flair's back in the company and mm-hmm. and, and jr's not yeah, and I'm surprised you know, would say something like, you let JR go because of what I did, I'm not coming back unless Jim Ross comes back too. Well, you see who your friends are in times like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess he wasn't such a friend. Uh, but in any event, um, I did want to touch on the ending of Raw. JJ uh, with Stephanie, you know what? She does have the passion of a McMahon. What's your thoughts on contract signing? Well, yeah, there's no doubt about Stephanie. You know, this isn't her first rodeo. As uh, she pointed out in that uh, segment, she's a fourth-generation McMahon, the third generation, uh, you know, in the wrestling business. You know, she's used to being in the spotlight with the cameras on her. Again, back to the Attitude Era, we all remember the – McMahon Helmsley era, so this isn't really new territory for Stephanie. You know, she's had the cameras on her. She's been in a lot of sort of high-profile angles with uh, Trish Stratus, you know, in the past. So, you know, going back and going head-to-head with, you know, Brie Bella, you know, it's nothing new for Stephanie. In fact, I think even Mick Foley uh, wrote on his Facebook, you know, he did a, a nice blog about how he's a Stephanie McMahon guy. And he, oh, I uh, read that. He was, yeah, he listed his reasons and you know about Stephanie and why he thinks he's so she's so great. And uh, I agree, she's always been great. She she knows how to turn it on. You know, she's a different Stephanie McMahon than she was in the Attitude Era. Maybe she's more uh, politically correct now. You know, now she's older. Now she's a mother. She she's more aware of what she's saying, but she still knows how to deliver. You know, she still knows how to you know turn it on and especially in the the role of a heel, I think she enjoys playing it up and getting the fans to boo her. And, you know, she makes uh, some great expressions and she raises her voice just right. You know, this is a new territory for Brie Bella. So, you know, a lot of fans are going to come hard on her saying she's a terrible actress and all this other things and she's not good. I mean, it, it's hard. You know, this isn't like Hollywood, which, by the way, I should point out uh, Dave Bautista recorded about 94 million with the guardians of the galaxy which released this past weekend it was a broke box office uh records for the month of august one movie so you know whether you love or hate him congratulations to dave batista they've already announced a was sequel he, so he's he do, movie? yeah dave was batista, he the, uh, He's one of the leading yeah. stars of the movie. He plays uh, one of the guardians that comes together and saves the galaxy and all that good stuff. And uh, as I mentioned, they are guaranteed they're going to have a sequel. So Batista has a great future with uh, this uh, movie trilogy. So uh, he's set. So, uh, again, like I said, it's different when you think of Batista in the movies as opposed to Brie Bella, who's live on Monday Night Raw, and there are no second takes. You can't go, okay, do it again, once more with feeling. There is none of that. You either nail it now or you look like an idiot. So, unfortunately for Bree, you know, there's times. 
what? This movie with Batista wasn't a WWE film movie, right? This was something else, right? Oh, no, no. This is something else uh, entirely. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is made by Marvel, uh, Marvel Comics, which is owned by Disney. So it's a Disney film. So it has nothing to do with wrestling whatsoever. It's, uh, it's completely outside of wrestling. Absolutely, and I think that has a lot to do with it. Marvel is a huge company, as you said, uh, very big. Uh, Dominic, what was your take on the uh, Stephanie McMahon uh, Bella situation on the contract signing yesterday? Well, it was your typical contract signing where you know a brawl is going to break out, um, as it does every time there's a, uh, a contract signing. Personally, I would have rather have seen a wrestling match and put the contract signing in the middle of the show and don't make it last all that long. They don't they shouldn't have closed out the show with a contract signing. It it wasn't all that interesting, but Stephanie can turn it on. She likes playing the heel role. She's great at it. She can fake yeah. tears at the drop of a hat. And then she's screaming, screaming bloody murder at the top of her lungs. I'm going to make you my bitch. <laughs> so she can act. She can cut the promos. But what is she going to be able to do in the ring? Uh, Pedigrees were sloppy. Yes. They were sloppy, especially if you compare them to Triple H. But for uh, a woman... Triple H has done sloppy rest. ones, too. He ain't always on the money. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, okay, also, uh, let's go back in history. Uh, is this one of the best angles? Let's take a listen to debate on the other Jermaine side. from Chicago. I was just thinking of what may be very cool for the WWE Network to air in the future, a special on the story of the Mega Powers. I believe it would be a compelling story to tell both of both Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, considering... Uh, they both started wrestling in the 70s, blew up in popularity in the 80s, the rivalry between them, and even go into their WCW history, and to them reconciling just before Savage passed away. You know, absolutely. I, I think they should be doing network specials just like this. I threw one idea out there a few weeks ago on the show, do a no-holds-barred night on the network. Air the movie with Hulk Hogan and Zeus, and then show some of the segments and the matches from TV that built up their feud in 89. They could do a Mega Powers night too. Just, just, just focus on the Mega Powers storyline. Forget the WCW stuff. Don't, I mean, what you're describing is almost like a biography on their careers. You could do a biography on Hogan by himself. You could do a biography on Savage by himself, and you can get two, three hours out of it. I would just do a special on the Mega Powers uh, storyline, on, on the pairing, on the breakup, on the matches they had. You could do two hours just based on them hooking up as a team for the first time. You know, Savage winning the belt at WrestleMania four. And then the slow burn of him becoming jealous of Hogan and Elizabeth, the big turn when Savage beat up Hogan, which I just watched on the network. Uh, they added a few more Saturday Night's Main Event specials. And one of them was the main event special from February of 89 where the Mega Powers uh, wrestled the Twin Towers. And by the way, if you've never seen that match before, or if you have, you may not have noticed, there's one scary-slash-funny moment towards the end of that uh, Mega Powers-Twin Towers match this is after Savage already bailed on Hogan. Hogan's kind of left by himself. He's trying to fight off the two big dudes. And Akeem goes to uh, come off the ropes. But I think what happened is 
the boss man also hit the ropes at the same time. And so when, uh, when, when Akeem hit the ropes, he fell through. And he actually fell to the outside and fell right on his head. <laughs> you know, and, and he's a big dude. You know, Akeem was easily 400, maybe even 450 at the time. So a guy falling straight through the ropes, landing right on his head, is pretty freaking scary. Uh, but he was okay. You know, he got up and he was there for the finish and he seemed to be all right. But uh, I don't know that I ever noticed that the first time I saw that all those years ago. But watching it in more recent years, I noticed it. And it's fucking hilarious. I mean, knowing the guy didn't get seriously injured, it's okay to, to laugh. Um, but, yeah, that show is up. That, that show is up right now on the network, and I just got done watching it. Um, and, you know, another thing about it that I never noticed until, until recently, back on the Saturday Night's Main Event days, they would do this deal where they would go backstage and, let's say, Jesse Ventura or Mean Gene would be interviewing the heels. They would cut a promo. Then they would make their entrance. Then they'd go back to the locker room, and Mean Gene was there with the babyface. So they did the same thing here. They have Mean Gene in the back before the match interviewing Bossman, Akeem, and Slick. And they were called the Twin Towers. Okay, that's number one. But they're talking about how, you know, I think Mean Gene said something about a terrorist attack on the Mega Powers. And I'm like, huh, that's an interesting choice of words. They do their promo. They come to the ring. Now we go to the back, and there's Mean Gene with Hogan and Savage and Liz. And there's some reference in their promo about bringing down the Twin Towers. And I'm like, I'm watching this, and it's so freaking eerie. I mean, this was in 1989. This was before even the first attack on the World Trade Center. And just listening to the, the, like the words in these promos, it's like, holy shit, that's eerie. That's eerie. Uh, the angle itself, and the reason I, I think you could easily do a network special on it is because it's, it's my favorite wrestling angle of all time. Um, you know, that that whole, the way it built and the turn that they did on that show was just phenomenal because Elizabeth, who never took bumps, she was this tiny thing, and she took a, a wicked bump. Savage got thrown out of the ring, and he landed right on top of her. It was it was great in terms of, like, wow, holy shit. Like, she she may have really gotten hurt. And Hogan is now down on his knees. His partner is down. His partner's uh, manager is down. He doesn't know what to do. So instead, he decides to focus on Elizabeth. You know, this little tiny woman just got wiped out. Savage wakes up, and now he's jealous because Hogan is down, and he's putting his hands all over his wife and carries her to the back, and he leaves Savage all by himself. Hogan, you know, walks down the aisle carrying this woman, puts her on a gurney, and he goes with the doctors to the back. And what we got was some of the worst acting of all time. You know, he, he tried. You know, God bless Hulk Hogan, but he tried here. But uh, not the best acting I've ever seen. And then, you know, Elizabeth wakes up. Oh, you know, Randy, you got to go to Randy. Go to Randy. And that's when Hogan came back out. And Savage slapped him in the face. And he bailed on him. And then Hogan, of course, ends up winning all by himself. He goes to the back. Now him and Savage have this big, intense, uh, you know, shouting match, and Savage is like, you know, you lost Elizabeth, you guys got me in the back seat this whole time, I'm the champion, I should be number one. Hogan's like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Try and talk some sense into this guy. And then Savage nails him. And one of the funny things about it is, at the end of the show, uh, they, they go back to uh, Hulk Hogan in the back. And Mean Gene's going to attempt to get a word with the Hulkster. And he's in a bad way because Savage really nailed him in the head, right in the side of the face with the title belt. He's got an ice pack on the side of his face. Beefcake is there. Of course, Hogan's BFF. 
and he tries to get a word with Hogan, and Hogan doesn't talk. Instead, he I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know what he's doing here, but I swear to God, it looked like Brutus was off camera giving him a blowjob. I swear, because like you couldn't see Brutus on camera. Hogan is sitting there, and he's like. I can't even describe it. You just have to go on the network and just watch it. Like, he's groaning. He's moaning and he's groaning, and finally he stands up, and now Hogan is incensed and he's looking for Savage. And another funny part to this, before the show ended, they show Hogan on a rampage in the back. He's throwing shit. Where's Randy? Where's Randy? And the two guys that he encounters, actually three, he, one of them is the anvil, but two of the guys he, he runs into, and he's like, where is he? And he just grabs them and assaults them. The two guys... Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. It's great. It's, it's just fucking awesome. Uh, so that's one of the cool things about the network, and if you've never seen that show before, uh, that, was, that was really the whole special. They had one more match between DiBiase and Hercules, but it was just filler. The whole point of that special was to break up the Mega Powers and build up to a match at WrestleMania, and that match did big business that year. I think up to that point, I mean, it, it did like a huge buy rate. Uh, and you got to think, the cable universe back then was a lot smaller, and that show did, like, over 700,000 buys. I mean, it did this huge number. It was just so well-built. It's my favorite storyline of all time. And, indeed, it was uh, well-built, J.J. Uh, one of the best feuds and storylines and best uh, guys working together is Hogan and Savage. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, Savage and Hogan, the mega powers, uh, the only problem with what he said was they already kind of did a special on them, a part of uh, their 12th WrestleMania Rewind, and they did uh, the mega powers explode, in which they kind of go through how they were formed, how the mega powers were, you know, came together, and, you know, as they tagged, and the matches they had together, and then the sort of jealousy of uh, Miss Elizabeth being between them, and Hogan kind of you know, just doing little things here or there with uh, Liz and, you know, Randy, you know, getting, you know, fed up and angry. Hey, what are you doing with my girl? And uh, eventually until it exploded and led to that big, you know, match at, uh, you know, WrestleMania. So they did do that special. I mean, if you want a, a real sort of documentary uh, DVD two-hour about uh, the history of, of that, that's, that's one thing. But they did sort of cover, you know, what they were asking. So, had to been done, but uh, I, I do like the idea of having maybe a, a night, a night of Randy Savage on the network, or a night of uh, Hulk yes. Hogan on the network, or even what he said, you know, no holds barred. It, it's their movie. It features Hogan. It had Zeus, and you can even play up that angle and some of the matches they had with uh, Zeus and Hogan and uh, the WWE. So you could sort of have make a whole night of that, and that's something they don't really have right now. They just have these you know, random shows, random pay-per-views. They just now started a thing uh, every Sunday. They're going to look back at a SummerSlam. And, you know, that's a, it's a step. But uh, as I mentioned, I think if they dedicated an entire day, uh, an entire block, 24-hour block of seeing the best of, you know, whether it was a, a single match, a pay-per-view, something just along that line, dedicated to a superstar, that would be great. Of course, if we watched uh, Raw this past Monday, like I said, uh, the second quarter earnings of the WWE Network came in, and the WWE went into overdrive, promoting the ever-loving hell 
out of the WWE Network. Every segment, every commercial return, they were talking about the network and how you can get it. Get it all. Get the WWE oh, Network yeah. for a low price of nine ninety nine. They said it so damn much that the fans at the arena were getting in on it, and then they were chanting and saying nine ninety nine every time Triple H or somebody brought it up. The announcers. We're saying nine ninety nine. They kept saying it over and over and over. That people were getting sick of it, but at the same time, this is their future. Again, I'm going to point out what uh, Paul Heyman said on the Ariel Helwani interview. He said pay-per-views are in a decline. You know, we're in this new sort of age where everything's digital, and it's a lot easier to hook you into the network. Because once you're hooked into the network, you have it 24-7. You could go on the network right now. You can see a pay-per-view. You can browse their library, their vault. And, you know, you can see, uh, you know, when a show ends, they kind of have, like, these little commercials between when the next show starts. And they, they'll, they maybe promote a, a DVD. Maybe they'll promote an upcoming uh, show or whatever. I mean, if you could imagine that they have a wrestler come on who's wearing his new T-shirt or if they have a new action figure or the 2K15 video game that's coming out and they display the, the trailer on the network, it's a way to constantly have these customers, you know, at your beck and call 24-7. You can advertise and shove products and merchandise down their throat and that's something you can't do on pay-per-view. On pay-per-view, you order it, you turn your TV on, you hope it comes on, you watch it, it's over, and that's it. You lose the pay-per-view. Uh, with the network, it's 24-7, and it's nonstop. It's a way for them to always sort of have you at the candy store and always have you knowing something what's going on with WWE. It's making you want WWE, crave WWE 24-7. And... Uh, it's just so much easier to get, you know, your hooks into people. And this quarter, you know, the first quarter, they got 667,000 subscriptions. That was back in April. And now it's July came, and they got the second quarter results. And they did find out that they did gain an additional 161,000 subscribers. However... They also lost. A lot of people, you know, their six months were up, and they unsubscribed. So about 128,000 unsubscribed. So basically, that cuts your difference at about 33,000. So they only really gained 33,000 uh, subscribers. So their total right now is about, you know, 700,000 subscribers to the network. But they did just announce on Raw that uh, next week – I believe, uh, is it uh, August 12th, and, uh, they're going to release the WWE Network globally, so Mexico, Spain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore will all be, have access to the WWE Network. However, the U.K. will have to wait until October, but uh, this is going to be a huge thing for the WWE. Their third quarter results should be phenomenal. I mean, if they don't break a million in their third quarter, I will be shocked because they're now releasing it globally. It's not just the United States anymore. They got seven, 700,000 from the U.S. alone. I mean, that's, you know, it's pretty impressive for, for two quarters. I don't think it's where they want to be. They were hoping to get that one million mark now. But uh, once it goes global, 
it should be a game changer, and it really should change, you know, how you order, you know, pay-per-views from the WWE. In fact, we all know they have a six-month commitment where if you subscribe to the network, you're pretty much stuck with it for six months, so $9.99 for six months. However, I think there is something in the works that they might want to do a one-month no-commitment charge in which you can maybe purchase, let's say, your favorite pay-per-views coming up, Maybe it's WrestleMania, maybe it's Payback, SummerSlam, what have you, and you can order the network for one month only, no commitment, just one month for 19.99. So that's something that they're thinking about in, in, uh, implementing in the future. Uh, right now, they still have the six months commitment, but it's something that they're thinking about. So if you're unsure, if you just want to cancel, they want to make sure. Well, if you're just going to do one month, we're going to charge you, you know, over double. Instead of 9.99, it's going to be 19.99. So this network thing, this is it now. This is what the WWE is going to be cramming down your throat. So you better get used to it. There's going to be a lot more 9.99 uh, chants and hashtags and probably even T-shirts. I bet you they'll release a T-shirt by next week that says 9.99. I mean, it's going to be, you know, incredible. So we'll see what happens with the WWE network and. You know, uh, what they, the content they put on the network, you know, that's going to be another thing. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people that subscribe, you know, you just get a taste of the WWE. Let's say you're an ECW fan. You want to watch all the pay-per-views. And when you're done watching all the pay-per-views, you want to unsubscribe. The problem is having people who subscribe to keep them subscribed and adding new content, whether it be, you know, like I said, a best of day where you have maybe the best of Tommy Dreamer, the best of Rob Van Dam, and you have a whole block dedicated to this, those superstars. I think that would be a tremendous way to hopefully keep subscribers. Uh, I think once they get uh, globally, that's when they'll succeed. But, Dominic, I did want to get your take on the Hogan-Savage, uh, uh, that era of uh, wrestling. Uh, that was what was great your take era. on that? With the mega powers and, and, and uh, Macho Man going, I see it in your eyes, Hulk Hogan, you're lusting for Elizabeth. That was... You're jealous. Yeah, yeah, you're jealous and all of that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That was, that was some angle. And I think when Miss Elizabeth took her skirt off, I forget who they were against, but Macho Man hated oh, that because he thought he did it for Hogan. Well, was that SummerSlam? I don't remember. She took her skirt off, and it looked like, like a leotard that you work out in. And Macho Man yeah. was livid. Because he thought oh, that she did that for Hogan. Oh, okay, yes, yes. That was a crazy angle, to say the least. Yes, he was very uh, protective of her. Very much. And then... Uh, yes, and I heard that's what caused the breakup, because he lived his gimmick, Macho Man. He yes. lived his gimmick of protecting yes. Elizabeth. That was he right. did it on the road, he did it at home. He did it in the arena, no matter where they went, you know, no matter where they went and they were together, he was way overprotective of her. I think he'd take somebody's head off if they even smiled at her wrong. Yeah. But that was one classy lady. I'm sorry I never got a chance to meet her, but I heard she was all class. 
Yeah, that's what they said. And he, we heard that uh, Macho Man punched Hogan uh, before WrestleMania 9 a couple of days. Yep. To Elizabeth, that's he had that black guy. Yep. Uh, don't know if that's definitely true, but that's the rumor. Yeah, that's what uh, I always heard. Now you so, guys were talking yes. about the network, and I read something today when I went online that the WWE is worried because one guy will sign up for the network. That'll be mm-hmm. his account. Yeah. But multiple people are allowed to use that one account. Yeah. So yes. it's like four guys are using the one guy's account. The WWE is losing money because three guys aren't buying it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent point. I hear that a lot. Yes, I, get... I don't know. Well, let's say, you know, you needed a code to get into whatever on your TV, hypothetically, then you got the special code to, to get a special channel, let's say, for example. But when you're not watching it, you could give it to your friend down the block and say, you know, Joe, oh, uh, if you want to use my code, you can see oh, okay. the network. So they can't watch it simultaneously, but uh, from what I understand... You can, uh, like, just look, I'm going out for the day, enjoy. Yeah, you know, okay. I'm sure they need to stop that and WWE just uh, have to find a way to block that. I, I don't know how they could, but they want to block nah. that. I don't know. I don't Absolute. know how they could. Okay, we got Eric Bischoff talking with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh... Check that. We've got Bret Hart talking with Chris Jericho growing up in pro wrestling. That's the funny story. I mean, it, 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 it makes me laugh to this day just how, um, how critically acclaimed and how legendary Stu Hart is, and not just as, you know, obviously a legendary promoter and, and, and performer, but everybody can do Stu Hart imitation. Everybody can do his voice. He's one of the most, most imitated guys in the wrestling business is, is Stu Hart. Well, I think uh, I can remember when I used to go to school, everyone in my school can imitate my dad. (laughs) He had one of those voices that was, you know, say comparable to someone like John Wayne, where once you could do it, everybody could do it. And he had a certain sort of, uh, I know, a lot of pauses in his... uh, Yeah, his cadence. Yeah, there'd be a lot of ahs in there. Sometimes sometimes it takes you five minutes to tell you... I mean, how was that growing up with Stu Hart as your father? I mean, obviously you're, you're one of 12 children uh, and, uh, and came, were basically born into the wrestling business. Your dad was the promoter for Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, Alberta area, and all across Canada. You, you pretty much have been around wrestling from the day you were born. How was that growing up with him and with all of the cast of characters that you must have met just at a young age that were probably hanging around you uh, all the time. You know, the more I look back on it and sort of reflect on it, I think that it must have been a lot of fun being my dad. You know, he got into wrestling and uh, went down to New York and sort of working for Vince McMahon's father and the wrestling promotions back then. There was a guy named Toots Month that uh, took a shine to my dad and uh, kind of mentored him after that and kind of got it, steered him into the getting into the promotion up here in uh, Alberta. And uh, he came back from... Uh, 
been working in the New York area for about three years where he met my mom and dragged her up to Canada and opened up his own wrestling promotion. And, uh, you know, he always, uh, always brought a certain toughness and realness to the wrestling that he had here. But he had, you know, a lot of the great characters and the champions of the 50s all came up to Calgary through his connections with Quitsmont. Mm-hmm. So guys like Jack Dempsey would come up here and referee for my dad. Wow. Gorgeous George and Antonio Rocco would come up. And so there was a lot of big names that came up here and suddenly were appearing in Calgary and Edmonton. And, and my dad, uh, you know, funny enough, he used to fly his wrestlers around in an airplane back in the 50s. Oh, really? You know, they had a little airplane. They'd fly everybody around. It was like a great territory, and they made nothing but money in the 50s. My dad had, I don't know how many Cadillacs parked in the yard by the time I was born. <laughs> but it, but that was, uh, I was born in 1957, and it, wrestling was really big for about six, seven years. For my daddy, I think he made a fair bit of money and paid off his house. And, you know, he had, by then he had about, uh, you know, eight kids or seven kids. And, and I know that uh, things really took a downturn in the, the mid or the late 50s, right around the time I was born. And uh, wrestling was a struggle to promote and make money from. From that point on, I think for most of the years that I was a kid growing up in wrestling, it was a tough, tough business to be in as far as mm-hmm. you know making a living from it. Right. So was it uh, hard, kind of growing up? Like you know, you know how it is in the wrestling business. How you mentioned how the business goes in cycles. Was it hard from a financial standpoint? Like you mentioned in the fifties that you guys had the Cadillacs and everything. Were there times when you guys had nothing because the business was bad as well? Oh yeah, I mean there was there was some tough times, especially in uh, probably the mid '60s. I can remember my dad had uh, started excavation work on that big house of his. He ran out of money and he couldn't afford to finish the, the front windows on the house, the big giant windows he was putting in. He couldn't finish the job for about at least three winters, and uh, that meant the whole house was like we lived in a tent. Wow. And those years, I remember being the hardest. Like I remember, you, that's why I think the hearts had so many cats, is you have to go to bed at night with about four or five cats <laughs> under the blanket. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, there was a fight at around 10 o'clock at night to see who could find the cats, you know. Was, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you. And we'd have, it was very cold. You could see your own breath in the room and stuff like that. And, you know, we went through some tough times. I remember, I mean, really, from the time I was born, just about till maybe the high school, uh, my whole life consisted of hand-me-downs and uh, the two square meals I got a day at, at home. You know, I got breakfast in the morning with my, my dad. But always, my dad did all the cooking and cleaning and driving. And my mom never had a driver's license. and We lived out in the country about 10 miles out of the city back then. And uh-huh. It was not easy for my dad. He was, you know, I can remember my, when I was a kid walking from, you know, school every day, walking home, which was, you know, Ways every, you know, when you do it all the time, especially after wrestling practice, you'd be pretty wiped by the time you got home, especially in the wintertime. Right. My dad, you know, he, he got up every morning about 6.30 in the morning and made breakfast for everybody. And he, and he come home and clean all the breakfast, clean up the kitchen and all the, because of the, what it took to feed 12 kids. And then he would make my mom breakfast in bed. And then my mom would get up and uh, the day would start. But, uh, my dad doted over my mom for most of her lifetime. She ran the business, ran the office and the phone calls and nurtured all the wrestlers and gave the talks when they needed pep talks. And mm-hmm. It was a bit of a marriage counselor for a lot of them. And 
cheer them up when they were depressed. And, you know, you don't realize how wrestlers are just like little boys sometimes. Right. Like lost men on their on the road to life, you know. And, uh, anyway, so the wrestling, I think my mom and dad ended up with the wrestling. They ran a kind of a fun business, but I don't think they made much money on it. Eventually, the kid, my, I think my dad uh, did manage to put together a very unique uh, wrestling show and a wrestling uh, experience that... Uh, I don't think is is um, you know I don't think it's attainable today. I think wrestlers they dream about wrestling territories in their heads, and the, Cal- the Calgary territory is one of the fun territories that uh, nobody ever made ever made much money there in working for my dad. But everybody had a lot of fun, and I, the one thing you learned to do is you learned how to wrestle. Right. And uh, that's what I think Calgary offered to the the rest of my dad put on. Uh, with Ed Whalen doing the commentary on the shows um, in Calgary, the Stampede uh, Pavilion. It was just a very unique uh, sort of a, uh, it was it was like a grand production that uh, that uh, a lot of other territories had similar type uh, um, sort of experiences, but right. uh, Calgary was the, if, I know you, uh, I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure if you were worked for my dad, I know you uh, worked in Calgary and you met some of my brothers, Keith, uh, yeah. took some of your money and uh, <laughs> thank you for learning all that he could teach you. Yeah, he, he showed up one on the first day and, and took our money and then he, he also stretched me, put me in this hold where I thought he was going to snap my teeth out. Because I didn't, I think I asked him a question that he didn't like or something. You know, anybody have any questions? And I asked him like, how many, how many matches have you had? Well, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Didn't anybody ever make a, a record of that or something along those lines? And he got mad at me and stretched me. And then we never saw him again for the rest of the time. But the thing that was cool was that there was a, a book, like, like a, that Stu had written or he had written some some training, uh, you know, some training notes down or kind of some ideas on how he would train guys or something like that. So we had we had some at least some Stu Hart esque like drills and stuff like that. But other than that, there wasn't really a lot of hearts involved in the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp. But the, yeah. the thing that was cool... Well, I was going to say the thing that was cool about Stampede Wrestling, though, uh, about what you were saying earlier, is it was a real mix of uh, American style, Japanese style, English style, Mexican style. It was kind of a hybrid of all those things uh, because of the different talent that your dad had brought in to work there. Yeah, and, you know, there was a lot of guys that came up to work for my dad that... Uh, you know, from a wrestling standpoint, from an American wrestling standpoint, were unusable. Like they were Puerto Ricans that couldn't speak English. They were Japanese guys that couldn't speak English. They were right. British guys that didn't have any kind of. Um, they didn't want to bring English guys into the states. Uh, so you end up a real, real interesting sort of crossbreed of different wrestlers. But also, you know, the best thing about Calgary was the age. You know, you ended up with a lot of old timers. Uh-huh. Guys like John Foley and bad news and a lot of old timers and then you end up with a lot of um, young kids that are all like eager to learn and when you get the old timers and the young guys together you get this sort of chemistry of guys that learn how to take care of the old guys and that the old guys teach the uh, young guys right. how, to, how to work without uh, hurting each other and it's uh, it's a real uh, passing of the porch. I think that's what I loved about Calgary and I think that uh, people didn't recognize until after they came here how much they learned you learned a lot. Yeah, it was like a good hockey team. You had a crop of rookies. You had the 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 middle of the road guys that were kind of, 
you know, like you said, kind of the, the seasoned vets that could teach the younger guys, and then you had the stars. Uh, and there were a lot of guys in Calgary. Like, I remember even from when I started, I never actually worked for your dad, but they, of course, the remnants, I think Stampede closed about six months before I got in the business. But when I got there, there were still guys like Johnny Smith and Greg Gama. And, and Jerry Morrow, to me, was one of the best guys that, that worked in Calgary that never really made it. I mean, he made it, but never made it in the big leagues. And I'm sure there was a lot of guys that were there like that when you were first starting out as well. They're all guys that could school you. Like Jerry yeah. Morrow maybe was the greatest seller. You know, he could sell better than any wrestler I ever watched. Like when he were kicked him, you'd, you know, you'd want to cry. Right. <laughs> he was so um, brilliant at making the guys that he worked with. And people will recognize that or, or remember that today, but I remember it. Yeah. These guys like Jerry Morrow made, made a million other wrestlers that everyone forgets about today. But right. There's guys like S.D. Jones and WWE and Rick McGraw and a lot of guys that, uh, you know, that, that laid down for a lot of guys and made a lot of guys. And Jerry Morrow was just one of those guys that, like you said, he's uh, with, uh, maybe one of the greatest of all time. I came back actual real wrestling, you know. I, I agree. I agree. And could do anything and... Uh, greatest backdrop too. He still to this day took such an amazing backdrop, and like you said, was good for a young guy. He taught he taught myself, you know, Lance Storm, guys like that, quite a lot um, because he had the experience that we didn't have. Okay, JJ, that was a very interesting uh, topic they were talking about. Reminiscing, uh, what's your thoughts first? Both. Well, I mean, I remember uh, watching on, believe it or not, the WWE Network. Uh, Bret Hart did one of those Legends of the Roundtable, and Jim Ross and Bret and uh, some other guys were talking about Stampede Wrestling. And, of course, I mean, you can't say Stampede Wrestling without talking about Stu Hart. You know, everybody has a, a Stu Hart story, and, you know, they remember just uh, really what a, a great you know promoter he was, uh, and uh, he was easy to deal with. Uh, no one really has anything. I think we've even talked to a few guests uh, on King Jordan Radio who uh, who dealt with Stu Hart, and everybody always says uh, the nicest things about Stu. In fact, I remember even uh, watching an interview with Mark Henry when Mark Henry was uh, just coming into the WWE, and they wanted him to uh, just kind of, you know, they wanted somebody that just kind of knocked some sense into him, so they sent him over to, believe it or not, Stu Hart. And Stu Hart and, uh, you know, Mark Henry went over some things. He tried to, you know, teach him, you know, just uh, just the way things go in wrestling and, you know, respect and, you know, things of, of like that. And uh, it's amazing to hear the world's strongest man, and he's talking about how there were times where he got out of line and, you know, he would uh, kind of do some things with Stu, and Stu would stretch him, and, you know, Mark Henry would be, you know, ready to tap. You know, he would be at his limits, and here he is being stretched by this, you know, kind of little old man, and he's the world's strongest man. But, you know, Stu was just uh, a hell of a guy, man. He could make anybody, you know, his, uh, you know, his, uh, I don't want to say the word, but, you know, Stu was just awesome. And uh, Stampede Wrestling in general was just it's really cool. I kind of wish that uh, Brett and them could work something out in which that we could see uh, Stampede Wrestling on the network. I know Jerry Lawler wants to get uh, his uh, Memphis promotion. He's trying to get the library and the tapes in order so that they could hopefully air that on the network. I would really love to see Stampede Wrestling 
on the W Network, see a lot of these older guys, those different styles that they mentioned. You know, I think that's one of the cool things about the territory days is you had such a vast style, whether it was a Japanese, a uh, Mexican, or a British, you know, hard-knuckle, bare-knuckle, you know, brawlers and just great technicians. And, you know, the young guys, the veterans, the stars, such a great mix of talent. And I remember them talking about, you know, you think territories here, you think about the South, the Midwest, and, of course, the East. And then, you know, with Canada, it's such a, a vast and open land. It's so huge in Canada. And I think we all have heard at least about just the brutal winters. If you could imagine traveling in a brutal freezing cold with tons of snow in Canada, it must have been horrible, those long, long roads going from place to place. Oh, my God. It must have been just miserable. But, I mean, those guys were some hard workers. And uh, they mentioned a lot of the guys who, you know, never made it to the big time or never made it in the States but still had, you know, great careers over in Canada. But uh, it was definitely cool to hear, especially uh, talking about the Hart family. I don't know how the hell Stu raised. What is it? Twelve children. I think there were five girls, and uh, Brett is a part of seven boys. I mean, my God, I don't know how the hell he did that and still, you know, providing for his family, such a large family, and still, you know, take the time to uh, run Stampede and to do things and to provide for his children and to make sure, you know, they come first. So, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. I don't know how Stu got it done, but I think he did a pretty damn good job. Amen to that, uh, Dominic. So say you. Yes, yeah, Stuart was definitely an icon. Everybody that came out of the out of the dungeon, Chris Benoit, of course, Brett and Owen, uh, Lance Storm, Brian Pillman, the list goes on and on. And and Stuart himself could could bend you into a million pieces, yeah, twist you all over, and you'd never get out. <laughs> You know, did, guys like Stu Hart are not around Was Dynamite Kid, was he trying yeah, to? Yeah, Dynamite Kid, too. Bulldogs, yeah. Yeah, Davey Boy, yeah. There's no teachers like that oh. around. When you when you went in the trenches with Stu Hart, you went in the trenches. I mean, even, even if yeah. you were a young rookie, he treated you like you were a seasoned veteran and said, get out there and do this. And you did it. You did it. You almost killed yourself doing it, but you did it to impress your teacher, to better yourself, and to hopefully make it in a big promotion. And Stu has to be one of the best shooters of all time and one of the best trainers ever. Uh, uh, yeah, look at all the great talent that came out of his dungeon. You know, Fred Hart, especially the uh, leader, um, the whole family that came out of that dungeon, yep. they all have wrestling skills. And uh, I don't think you'll ever find a better teacher than no. uh, than uh, Stu Hart. Okay, I do have the Daniel Bryant clip with uh, Chris Jericho. Let's take a listen. So were you obviously a wrestling fan when you were growing up? Yeah, oh yeah, I was a huge wrestling fan. And um so it's actually interesting. My um uh gosh, my father passed away. I know. Sorry, um, sorry was, man. Um, 
Yeah, not Monday, but the Monday before. And so I went back to Aberdeen for uh, for his funeral and all that kind of stuff. But um, his, my uncle, which is, so my dad was one of, of six children. So mm. my uncle, Lucky, who is uh, the closest to my dad in that, he ended up marrying the wife, or sorry, the um, the mother of my best friend when I was in first grade. Okay. Uh, my best friend when I was in first grade, his name is Warren. Mm-hmm. And Warren introduced me to this guy named Abe Godfrey. And Abe Godfrey, <laughs> like, it was Abe Godfrey's first day at school, and we all came back to my house, and, and Abe was like, okay, I've got something in my, in my backpack, but you have to promise not to tell anybody if I show you. And we're like, oh, okay, you know, because we're in first grade and we don't know any better, right? It's like, oh. And he pulls out these wrestling magazines, oh. and we start looking through them. And I don't come from a family of who liked wrestling. Like uh-huh. My dad never watched it. My mom never watched it. Nobody ever watched it. And just this kid, Abe Godfrey, pulled out these magazines, and I was just instantly hooked. And, like, <laughs> and just being somebody who was, like, I've always enjoyed reading and all that kind of stuff, and then the pictures and everything. It's just wrestling is just magic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when you, especially when you get sucked into it from a young age. So Well, and it was different back then, too, because now, I mean, you can go online and you can read behind the scenes and you can subscribe to uh, the Wrestling Observer, you know, behind the scenes dirt sheet. But back, back then you couldn't. Like, all you knew is what they would show you on TV. And you could read an after magazine, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but it was all, you know, all made up anyways. So I never knew that wrestling wasn't quote-unquote real until I was about 19 or 20 years old, as stupid as that sounds now, but there was no way to find out. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, uh, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's it's amazing because you just watch it. And, like, there were guys that I thought were not real. Like, okay. And I don't know why he, why this person sticks out specifically to me, but I remember always watching Dino Bravo and being mm-hmm. like, oh, this guy's not really tough. Like he wouldn't win any real fights. And, wow. I don't know, like, and I don't know where I got the idea that Dino Bravo was not tough, but the ultimate warrior was. Yeah. And like, you, you know, I, I, I don't know where I, where I got these ideas from, but like, I, for some reason I thought that what Dino Bravo did was phony. And then what, which is weird, right? Was 100% legit. You know, it's, it, I, I would love to be able to go back into my own head and see how I thought about things. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I was the same. I remember I used to watch uh, Stampede Wrestling, and the tag team was Bruce Hart and Brian Pillman. And to me, I, like, I, I thought Brian Pillman is amazing, but this Bruce, Hart's te- Bruce Hart is terrible. And I didn't really know why he was terrible. I just knew he was. And then you look back, and it's because, well, he's terrible. You know? <laughs> but even as a fan, I could figure that out, you know, but not really knowing yeah, yeah. the reasons why. <laughs> so, I mean, so you, you grew up a wrestling fan. You wanted to, you, so then you decided that you wanted to be a wrestler when you were still living in Aberdeen? Yeah. And so, like, I had kind of decided it was, um, you know, in 1996 uh, is when WCW started bringing in all the cruiserweights and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And actually, 95. I remember '95 that you know Eddie and 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 um, Dean and and those guys come in. Yeah. But then in in the '96 is when Ray came in, mm-hmm. and like I was really thinking about, oh man, I'd really like to be a, a wrestler in 1995. Keep in mind I'm 14 years old, and so like <laughs> at that point, and so I'm like, uh, okay. But then in '96 when Ray came in, and Ray was only five three, and like uh, yeah. like in the Pro Wrestling Illustrated said 135 pounds or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> like 
you, you, you watch them, and all these excuses that I had as to why I might not be able to be a pro wrestler, they all went out the window, you know? Yeah. And then um, I found out later that year, because I was a sophomore, uh, that Dean Malenko, who was my favorite wrestler, Dean mm-hmm. was my favorite, my absolute favorite, and um, that he had a wrestling school. I was like, because I didn't realize wrestling schools existed. I yeah. didn't know what, what that was. But I, somehow I found out, and I don't re- even remember how. Oh, I think in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, they, they had a, an advertisement. Do you want to be a pro wrestler? <laughs> Pay $20 or something like that, and we'll send you a book that tells you how to be a pro wrestler. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and essentially all it did was just like, you have to get gear. Here's places where to get gear. You have to get training. Here's places where you can get training. But like, like you said, there wasn't like the internet wasn't. Right, wasn't you couldn't so just look up and find time, it. So like, that's what you had to do to find out. And so, um, and I saw in there that there was the Malenko School of Wrestling, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's the holy grail of like <laughs> this is the, the biggest find, you know? It, yeah. You know that. For a kid that's 15 years old, and so I was 15. I was like working at McDonald's, and I sent my $500 deposit to uh, I forget uh, what the lady's name was, but just to reserve <laughs> my spot because here I was thinking that there would be this several-year-long wait to get into the Malenko School of <laughs> Wrestling. So I needed to reserve my spot now, <laughs> right. and um, of course, my senior year of high school, which was 1999, I. Uh, I Three months before I was graduating, um, oh Phyllis Lee was her name. Phyllis oh. Lee gave, gave gave us gave me a call and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, the Malenko School of Wrestling is closing." Oh, like, you know, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> like what am I going to do?" Because I haven't applied for any colleges, I haven't done anything like that, you know. Like, yeah. uh, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, you know, and then of course I was working like. I worked a bunch of minimum wage jobs, right? So $500 is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then um, I don't know if it was my friend Evan or who who told me, but that Shawn Michaels was opening up a school, and it was uh, it, it was substantially more expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but um, but then I ended up going to Shawn's, and so that yeah that ended all up working out for the best, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, it's something similar happened to me when I first uh, applied to go to the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp and Stampede Wrestling, and then when I, I did get to go, but six months before I went to camp, Stampede Wrestling closed, and it was the same feeling, like, ah, oh, so close, man, what do I do? But you just have right. to, you know, I mean, and, and that's the thing about, about Dean Malenko, man, I mean, he was so fluid of a wrestler, and people forget if you've never seen Dean or if you just know him now as kind of the... Uh, behind-the-scenes producer, I mean, that guy was as smooth as silk in the ring, and I think he's pretty underrated when you look at the history of great performers, because not a lot of people will say, that, oh, yeah, Dean Malenko's one of the best, but I think he still, this day, is one of the best. Well, and, and to me, as far, I mean, there's different, uh, you know, when, when I look at wrestling, I feel like I'm, like I'm a wrestling student still mm-hmm. to this day, what works and what doesn't work and all that kind of stuff. As far as his technique goes... I don't think that there's any anybody better at yeah. mat wrestling than than Dean. Like he was just he was so good at all of that, and not only that, so creative with everything that, that yes. he did and and all that kind of stuff. And it was funny because just it, it was probably 2011 or something like that. I I had asked Dean to show me this one thing that I've seen him do, and he still did it. I don't rem- I don't know how old Dean is right now. I think he's 
50 or he's 50 or he's 54 there. i think he's 54 yeah and and he did it so quick and so much better <laughs> than me and i tried to do it like five or six times and then eventually just gave up out of embarrassment more than anything else like <laughs> yeah. uh and it was, it was just like but you know he trained with uh with with Carl Gotch and like his brother. Mm-hmm. Did you ever wrestle his brother? Did you ever or I, meet I, his brother? No, well yeah, Joe? we did a couple angles with him in WCW, but he had retired by that point. But I watched. I mean, obviously, classic Malenko brothers versus British Bulldogs from all Japan. I mean, there's some yeah. tremendous matches with the two of them. Yeah, and like so, like I I would always seek out like the you know obscure kind of matches, and now nothing's obscure because yeah. you have YouTube, you know, and so like. Guys can, but like uh, Joe wrestling again in uh, Masafuchi, and they were doing like all this crazy mat wrestling that you you'd never seen in the United yeah. States, and like and then Dean did all that stuff, but then just did it way more fluid, and then mixed it with the with these fast paced matches where those matches I don't think would have ever gotten over in the United States at the time. You know what I mean? They were just kind of too slow. But Dean incorporated all that stuff into like a fast paced style. And it was just yeah, it was just incredible. Well and, and that's the thing like you just mentioned, you try and do some of the stuff that they make it look so easy and then you know, I would try it and it would just look awful and there was some of those guys I'm sure you know uh, Johnny Saint from from England. Yeah. That guy, probably the most obscure name that's ever been mentioned on Talk is Jericho, but it's this English guy called Johnny Saint, and he does stuff that I've never seen anybody else do, and it's so fluid and cool-looking, but if you try it, it looks just terrible. It looks like, it looks like yeah. a joke, you know? Oh, oh yeah, and there was, a big, there was a big movement in independent wrestling several years ago as far as the European style. Mm-hmm. So I got first introduced to European wrestling by... Uh, by Regal in right. um, in 2000 when I went when I went and trained with with him and um, so he was telling me but it was just literally like he would kind of show me stuff but there was no way to get access to that yeah. right well then again you know through YouTube and through DVD trainers and whatever it is you know like all of a sudden that stuff kind of, kind of became readily available and a lot of independent wrestlers are huge wrestling nerds right so mm-hmm. they're you know ordering all this stuff and watching it and you have no idea how many t- how many terrible johnny saint <laughs> i have seen throughout my career it's like you know uh like there was a, a certain logic to their um like wrist lock reversals and all that kind of stuff but yeah. The guys were just trying to do the thing, not nearly as smooth and without any of the logic that came with the world of sport. And so, yeah, it looks so uh, bad, right? It's pretty funny. I remember when yeah. the, when the, when when Negro Casas is uh, the La Magistral, his he would do like this little roll up pin thing. And it'd yeah, be, yeah. In about the mid '90s, late '90s, everyone was trying to do the Magistral, and you know you can't for whatever reason that's that's Negro Casas' thing. And there'd be like you said dozens of really bad mahi strals going on in matches everywhere of guys thinking like <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is i specifically remember a uh a very bad billy kidman on my straw cradle like <laughs> like i remember watching it because uh, it was still like i had started wrestling at this point and um and I had watched it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that might be the worst cradle I've ever seen. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I forgot about it entirely until right now, and I'm going to have to bring it up to him. When I <laughs> yeah, that's right, because we all thought, like, oh, wow, we can do this, but it's not the case. Wow, those guys could talk uh, a really good, uh, good round and stuff, JJ. What's your thoughts? Oh, man, that was a, a lot of fun. It definitely makes me miss. Uh, Daniel Bryan, uh, hearing him talk with uh, Jericho, and we're definitely missing him in the WWE right now. 
But, uh, again, when you hear Brian talk, he, he really has this sort of charisma. He's just, you know, talking about wrestling and when, when he fell in love with it and when he was young and he wanted to get into wrestling. And, of course, back then, you know, how did you really know? Wrestling wasn't, you know, really outed. It wasn't as, you know, mainstream where there were all these secrets and all these things that were leaked online. There, there was no, you know, online then, you know. They, they had to get their sources from, you know, wrestling magazines. And speaking of magazines, it was just announced, I believe, a part of uh, WWE's budget cuts that WWE Magazine, as well as uh, their kids' magazine, I believe, will be having their final issues. They're going to be cutting back on WWE Magazine. There will no longer be a monthly magazine. I think they're still going to keep the annual you know, WrestleMania, the Year in Photos magazines that you only see once or twice a year. But the, the monthly WWE magazine, uh, magazines are basically over, as you know it. I think the last issue may come out uh, in September or October. But uh, WWE Magazine, uh, a victim of budget cuts. But uh, back to Brian and Jericho, I think it's pretty funny that, you know, you had to look in the, the magazines and then, you know, you had to give your 20 bucks to uh, learn the secrets of pro wrestling. And they basically just kind of told you, well, you know, you can get your gear here or, you know, here are some schools you could try out. He tried to go to Dean Malenko, who he was absolutely right. I mean, Dean Malenko, I agree with Jericho too, probably one of the most underrated uh, pro wrestlers, especially when you look back on his career. He really was uh, legitimately so smooth in just his ability to just link moves and to just flow through uh, his matches. I mean, there weren't really any better than Dean Malenko in that time and the matches he had uh, in WCW and, uh, you know, at the time it was the cruiserweight division. It's a, it's a shame that he never made it to that next, you know, level. I think it had a lot had to do with his height, unfortunately. You know, WCW even... WWE, they don't uh, always like to push the little guy, but uh, Dean was uh, cool, man. He was really cool when it came to wrestling. He was awesome. And, of course, he goes to WWE, and what do they do? They give him some sort of corny James Bond, lady man, you know. I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but it's a shame that, you know, he didn't really take off because he was phenomenal. He was uh, real awesome to watch. But uh, I think it's cool to hear that Brian was inspired by uh, Rey Mysterio. And, you know, if Rey Mysterio can make it, he's on television, he's having all these great matches, you know, at the 5-3, I think Brian said, you know, I, you know, I can do this too. You know, I may be not the biggest, the tallest, or the most muscular, but, you know, I can do this too. So that was, uh, you know, I'm glad uh, he saw Rey Mysterio was inspired and that we're watching him now. And, you know, who would have thought that a guy like Rey Mysterio would have headlined WrestleMania won the world title, and now a guy like Daniel Bryan headlined WrestleMania and won the world title. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome to see that every now and then it might take a special individual, and it maybe won't happen too often, but it's nice to see guys who work so hard and to get rewarded, you know, at the biggest stage of them all, at the, the national and global level. And uh, it's just uh, it's pretty cool. And uh, it's really cool. There's uh, footage you can probably see online on YouTube of Shawn, Shawn Michaels calling uh, one of Daniel Bryan's early matches. And, you know, and it's just it's really funny looking back on it and him saying that, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be, you know, one of the big names in the future and all this stuff. And it, you watch the Daniel Bryan wrestle then and he's, 
and he's doing a lot of the moves that he, he's still doing now, and it's just it's just remarkable how far you know he's come and how good he is, and it just really sucks about his uh, injury. I know we talked about it last week. You know he he did uh, that one incident with the home robbery, and uh, he, he also uh, spoke in a press conference that you know he will indeed need a second surgery to repair uh, some nerve damage. So, you know, Daniel Bryan will not be returning to the ring this year. I mean, cross your fingers that the second surgery went okay. He rehabilitates okay. He gets his strength back in his arms. His nerves are okay. And hopefully we will see Daniel Bryan at the 2015 Royal Rumble. That would be awesome. I got to agree. Uh, you know, uh, it'll be a gift when Daniel Bryant comes back because between him and not having Punk, there's a lot of void missing. Dominic, what did you think of the uh, conversation between Jericho and uh, Bryant? I thought it was great, especially when they mentioned Dean Malenko. Chris Jericho is yeah. the one that labeled Dean Malenko Dino Machino because... Dean Malenko was tr- a true wrestling machine. Yeah. So smooth, so crisp in WCW. Yeah. And now JJ reminded me of something. In WWE, they had him be that ladies' man, like a James Bond type. I never uh, even remembered that until you you brought it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no problem, brother. <laughs> but... I thought he didn't achieve the greatness that he did in WCW with his matches with Rey Mysterio and and that whole cruiserweight division. Yeah. And in WWE, they didn't do right by him. I think a guy like Dean Malenko would have been fantastic as an X Division guy in TNA. Oh wow. Yeah, he he would have been unbelievable. All them smaller guys that they brought into WCW back in the day would have been excellent as an X-Division wrestler in TNA right now. And that includes Chris Jericho and all them other smaller guys, like even Billy Kidman. They would have been great X-Division talents. Billy Kidman, he was another one, better in WCW than than WWE. Mm -hmm. Oh, no question. As far as Daniel Bryan goes, it's not shoulder surgery again. It's more like it's nerve surgery. But he is going to be out for a a very lengthy time. And I just hope the Yes Movement don't forget that Daniel Bryan will be back. I hope it doesn't phase itself out. Yeah. Well, uh, she saw saw Raw last night. Stephanie was mocking it. Yes, uh, she was. She was. So in that effort, they're still trying to keep it alive, I guess. Yes, even by making fun of it, you're still bringing it to people's attention. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's still uh, around, it'll still it'll be back. Yes, Dominic, did you catch uh, the Impact Thursday the uh, special? And if so, what was your thoughts on it? Last Thursday's Impact was one of the best Impact shows I've seen. It was unbelievable wow. with um, with the Wolves match against yeah. the Hardys. That alone was oh, worth yes. the two hours to sit there. And all the other matches, wanna... unbelievable. That was one of, the, one of the best two hours ever that, that TNA ever put on. Unbelievable. Really good stuff from top yeah. to bottom. 
and they still didn't show the part where Dixie gets uh, through the table. That's, that's I can't believe we've taken. That's this week. Yeah. And I, I was sitting there at June 26th, so by the time that airs, that'll be about 40 days old. But, yeah, it, uh, will, it, will, it will be, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, J.J., what was your impressions of uh, Impact? Did you see it, A? Oh, yeah, of course. I uh, I watched TNA, as Dominic said. What an amazing, I think they kicked it off with the Wolves defending the, their their TNA tag titles against the Hardy Boys finally reuniting. It was uh, an amazing uh, match between the two guys. I mean, it was a dream match, and I, I hear... They're supposed to have uh, another match at these new uh, New York tapings that's going to feature the Wolves, the Hardys, and now Team 3D. So it should be, you know, really awesome. I mean, uh, it's going to be like uh, watching uh, the Attitude Era again when you had Edge and Christian, the Hardys and the Dudleys, except now it's in TNA with the Wolves. So and it's great to see that the Wolves retained. They didn't just put over the Hardys and gave them the titles right away. They let the TNA guys get the win. So, you know, I'm really happy for the Wolves. There was an X Division uh, tournament. We saw uh, Loki defeat Manic and uh, Zima Ion, which was a really cool sort of a fast-paced match. And now Loki, I think, will be taking on uh, Samoa Joe and uh, Sonata on this Thursday's Impact, so that should be a, a real great physical match. Uh, also, uh, last week we saw Sonata, Crazy Steve, against uh, Brian Cage, again, another tournament. I didn't know who the hell that guy Brian Cage was, but I definitely took notice of him. I mean, he's a huge guy, big, jacked up, but yet very quick, very agile, very strong. He did a move. He did a combination move, really. I think he had uh, Crazy Steve in a Samoan drop position. So he had Crazy Steve sort of on his shoulders, and he was holding Sonata at the same time in his arms, and he did a fall-away slam to Sonata and a Samoan drop to Crazy Steve at the same time. I've never yeah, I saw seen that. Unbelievable. Any... Yeah, it, it was phenomenal. So this is a guy I hope, I don't know if he's going to be signed with TNA, I don't know. If he'll be back with TNA, but I hope we see more of this guy, a new talent, a breakout star, potentially could be a really great for TNA. So uh, I hope to see more of that guy, but I am very excited for the X Division tournament and the finals and crowning a new X Division champion. Uh, again, I think their main event last week was a really impressive match between Bobby Lashley and Austin Aries. Lashley was just superb. I thought he did a phenomenal job with Aries. Aries always brings it. He's a very uh, intense, very physical guy. He did some great stuff. But uh, impressed by the work of Bobby Lashley, who we've only seen wrestle so often. So I thought for a main event for the TNA World title, I thought these guys had an amazing match. I really, uh, I really loved uh, the match. I'm definitely looking forward to this week. They did show a highlight. At the very end of TNA last week, they showed a teaser clip showing uh, Bully Ray in the, the corner turnbuckle with Devon and Dixie Carter and Devon giving uh, Bully Dixie. And you see you know, Bully Ray in the corner of the ring with Dixie, and you see the table laid out. Even I think the table had the spray paint Dixie the name on the table. And uh, just before Bully jumped, 
course, it went black, so you have to watch it this week. It should air finally. We've been waiting so long to see this on television. Uh, they realize that there's a lot of hype going on about this moment, and they, like I said, they teased it last week. So this is the show to see. Don't miss it. Dixie Carter gets powerbombed through a table by Bully Ray. It should be awesome. Absolutely, and that is uh, still from the, they did three shows, that is still the show from I went to, so each show they take two two episodes, and they still have a show from Friday, June the 27th, so I'm figuring that'll be another two weeks, and then until they start the next set of tapings until everything's all said and done with the New York shows you could be looking at uh, Bound for Glory practically the way things are shaping up yeah and uh, that's kind of scary because uh, as we all know Bound for Glory is uh, in what month? October when does the deal with Spike TV go out? October October. it's uh, you know it's very scary to think that they may not have you know, a television leading up to their biggest uh, pay-per-view of the year, especially now that they're taping these second uh, New York taping shows. And, you know, I'm really excited to see Tajiri back. I'm really excited just to see, you know, what's next for TNA. They really have done a a long way to finally get uh, some momentum on their side. And now you have, you know, this deal with Spike TV, and it's really, you know, damaging towards TNA. I just hope everything works out for TNA and that they stay, hopefully stay on Spike TV or at least, for the very least, find another uh, station that, you know, will will take them in. You know, at least for guaranteed one million viewers, I mean, you'd have to be a fool not to pick them up. But, you know, there's a lot of politics going on. There's a lot of money issues at stake. So it's hard to say what will still happen between uh, TNA and Spike. But, you know, we're all pulling for them. Nobody wants to see them go away. We want I read something to, today, you know, guys, um, that Spike TV offered TNA a new deal, but they want 13%, something like that. I don't have my notes in front of me. But they want 13% of what TNA makes. And TNA can't afford to pay them the 13 or 15%, whatever it is. So I think that's one of the things that's that's holding up the uh, the wheels in, the wheels in motion here is that because they want a certain percentage to keep it on their network. Right. That that uh, that, that is true. And uh, I we think will see the hope. I think you'll be in agreement. Yeah. Maybe uh, yes. I mean. Network I could think of is Fox Sports One, which is new, and they have the Mike Francesa show, and they have, you know, things like that, and uh, fighting and jail shows, and you know, similar to Spike. So, you know, that's not a bad second option if they get on there, but hopefully they will. Okay, recently, these Diamond Dallas Page spoke about uh, uh, starting his wrestling uh, world at. 35. Let's take a look. What was it like? I mean, that had to have been, you know, I know you'd been in the business for a long time as a manager, but it's got to be very humbling just to, you know, start at the age of 35 and just continue to go down to that school. 
Well, starting out, you know, they want you like, and you know this because the same shit happened to you. I don't care when you start, the first thing they're going to try to do is what? Run you off. <laughs> right. Because if you can't handle getting trying to get run off, then you sure as hell can't handle our business. And they fucking busted my balls and rode me hard. And we did 500 you know, of the Hindu squats before we started anything. And when you're doing 50 Hindu squats, you think that first two, you know, the first 100, you're cool. You get to 150, you're like, whoa, what the fuck? You get to 200, 250, and you got spaghetti legs, and you know you're just getting it halfway, Mark, and then you got to keep going. I mean, I got to a point, because if you tell me, and you know this, Steve, you tell me you, you can't do something, I'm, I'm really going really to jump in it then. But if you try to push me outside my box, I'm going to push myself farther. I got to where I could do 1,200 in these spots. And I don't think that's too good for the knees. But the bottom line is they try to run me off, and I got real humble, and I should shut the fuck up. And I, I spoke when I was spoken to. I took that whole Diamond Dallas Page persona and put him in a closet. You know, and waited until it was time for me to get back out in front of a camera before I bring that back out. But when I was at the power plant, I shut the fuck up and I listened. Now, when you're you in know? training mode, when you're in training mode, who was leading that? Was that Buddy Lee Parker or was that exclusively Jody working with you? Jody was on the apron because sometimes I'd be the only guy there. Other times it'd be 20 guys. But, you know, I was the first to come to last to leave. And, you know, Buddy Lee, he was the fire hydrant. You know, he was five foot six, five foot seven, two twenty five, yoked. And he was as stiff as it could be. You know, and <laughs> you'll see if, you know, we're just going to run this, this big fucker off. And they didn't. And Jody, there was, there was a point where I was maybe three or four months in. And he said, you know, Donald, when you came down here, I didn't give you a shot in hell. He goes, but four months later, you keep doing what you're doing, you just might be lucky enough to make a name for yourself at some point down the line. That's and so Jody, from that point on, would take a special interest in me, and, and he would teach me. But let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me break in real quick. For the people that don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Jody Hamilton, who's one of the assassins, one of the most intimidating, uh, well-old uh, tag teams in the history of pro wrestling, and Jody would just cut a very low-key, menacing promo that would literally scare the shit out of you, make you fear for the lives of the baby faces, and instill uh, uh, a desire to go buy the ticket to see the ensuing match. That's the kind of cat that Jody Hamilton was, and that's the guy that's working with DDP right now. And, hey, man, if Jody Hamilton will put a stamp on your ass, that, that is a hell of an endorsement. And, and he was the very first. And when you say that, you got to remind the people he wore a mask. Right. So the facial expressions that he could pull through the mask. And when he would, there was a thing where they did much later on, like maybe a year or so after when I got down to power plant, where Jody showed up with the mask on. You know, he was in the corner and Dusty was in the corner. They never touched. But what they did to, you know, the people were right. going crazy <laughs> because those guys really knew how to work, like at a different level. And Jody, you know, he just, he just took me under his wing, and he was the first guy. He was my first mentor. He was my first in the ring wise, and he was my first guy to really say, yeah, man, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. And then that later would come again with, uh, with Jake, you know. 
But but once you're, you're training at the power plant, you're you're working with uh, Sarge and uh, Jody, and you get back in the ring. You're working with cats like Scotty Flamingo. You do the deal with Vinny Vegas, uh, and you go down with a rotator cuff injury in '92. Did you get surgery on that rotator cuff? Oh yeah, and that, I'll never forget. Mick Foley just just texted me because he's performing next Sunday at a comedy club here, and I want to bring Scott and Jake and you know a bunch of my buddies to go sleep because he's got a really funny actor, really funny. And it's getting better and better. I've seen it a couple of times, but uh, Mick was there the day I told my rotator cuff, and he walked up to me and he goes, "Is it the worst pain you've ever had in your life?" And I said, "Yeah, dude, I can't even lift my arm." He's like. You tore your rotator cuff. Now, I would go to the doctors. They tell me I got a bone bruise. They send me to go get an MRI. I come back. They say I still got a bone bruise. I'm like, I think I tore my rotator cuff. And they're like, well, no, we don't see that. And so, you know, I don't know if their company was trying to save himself money or what, but Lex came up to me in the gym. You know, I was just trying to do some cardio because I couldn't lift my arm. I was on the bike. And he came up to me, and he goes, how's your shoulder? I go, it's not dude, good, dude. I can't even lift it up. He goes, go see my doctor. So he sent me this guy, Dr. Armstrong. He looks at my shit. He goes, you tore your rotator cuff. I go, that's what Mick Foley said. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Foley's just standing next to you talking. He'd, what does Mick Foley know about a rotator cuff? And, and don't get me wrong, you and me and Mick Foley used to travel together and, and laugh our asses off. And Mick Foley's one of the smartest cats I've ever known in the business and has been a best-selling author and, and a successful stand-up comedian now. But he damn sure ain't no doctor. But, but he's torn every muscle in his body. You're so. right. You're right. <laughs> he might be the all, the all, the all, uh, the all knowing Oz. I'm gonna keep. All I know is he diagnosed it a week and a half before anybody else did. Well, it's definitely good to hear these two uh, talk. Dominic, what was your take on the uh, Diamond Dallas uh, and Tom oh, Cole so conversation? Diamond Dallas Page started so late in the business. He achieved a lot. He was a great manager before he became a wrestler. And being taught by the assassin, Jody Hamilton, one of the best singles guy and tag team, the master assassins were unbelievable. And when you get taught by Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker of the State Patrol, that was his gimmick in WCW. He's stiff. He'll break you in half. He could break the biggest guy in the world in half. As short and as squat as he was, built like a fire plug, yes, he was 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, or whatever, but he was stiff. You worked your ass off. I don't know about them Hindu squats. I can't even do one. And these guys are doing yeah. thousands of them. God bless, God bless them. I'd go all the way down and just sit and stay there and say, fuck it, I'm done. <laughs> them guys did it. Amen. They did it. They did. They really did. JJ, yeah. what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, a tremendous story. Like like uh, Dominic said, DDP starting at 35. That's uh, pretty unheard of. A lot of guys start when they're teenagers. You know, they start even sometimes with all they have their parents' permission before they're even 18. Uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to hear someone starting at 35, starting wrestling at 35, and uh, the career he's had is just, uh, it's been a really great ride for him, and, you know, he had some great things happen, and the only other person I could maybe compare starting kind of uh, late would probably be, uh, believe it or not, was uh, Batista. Batista started wrestling at 30, 
You know, he didn't get into a ring until he was 30. He went to OVW for about two years. He came to the main roster. He was maybe about 33 or so. And now he's, you know, nearly, what, 45. He's in his mid-40s. So, I mean, it's pretty hard. Not many people start wrestling in their 30s, let alone at 35. I mean, this is a... I hate to say it, but it is a young man's game, especially the WWE. They're always looking for the next big star, and uh, they're always looking towards the youth. So it's pretty rare that uh, to go for someone like uh, DDP was 35, and he had a pretty great ride. I had so many uh, fun memories of DDP and Randy Savage or DDP and Canyon or Bam Bam Bigelow. I mean, he's had so many uh, great moments in WCW not as many great moments in WWE. Unfortunately, he got hurt uh, early on, and he broke his neck, and uh, that was pretty much the end of him in WWE. But uh, DDP has really come a long way, and now he's got this DDP yoga. He's doing great things, and he's uh, helping and inspiring and healing a lot of people. So you know, he's really uh, come a long way and doing a lot of great things. And uh, I've always... Uh, been a fan of him and uh, it's true what they say though when when you start uh, wrestling school i've heard so many stories they do try to run you off they want to break you because there's a lot of kids with big dreams and you know all this good stuff that they want to be pro wrestlers and you know that's awesome everybody has a dream but uh, there's some people they're just not you know cut out for it and uh, when you train man they really do they break you they make you sweat they make you pass out and vomit and throw up. I mean, they'll do everything they can to, you know, see how bad you really want it. And DDP wanted it, man. Even at 35, you know, as Dominic said, they did those Hindu squats. And if you don't know what a Hindu squat is, look it up on YouTube. It's brutal. I mean, just doing 500 traditional squats, I mean, I would be knocked out on the floor, you know, crying for my mama but 500 Hindu squats, holy crap, man. That's That really will just knock you out, man. You'll be spaghetti legs for days. <laughs> well, the thing when DDP joined was within the WCW era. It, actually, it wasn't so bad because look at the guys that at that time, Hogan, Savage, they were all, you know, in their 40s at least. You know, so DDP fitted perfectly because if you remember back Dominic, in the 90s, they used to call WCW wheelchair wrestling. Oh, I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So from that standpoint, Pipers, you know, these are guys that had a success run in the WWE, but they... Uh, then they came to WCW for a second run. Uh, I don't think that ever came close to their first run. Uh, when Bret Hart went to WCW, nothing could, nothing could, could compare to his WWE run. Hogan, same thing. Warrior was a mess. Uh, who else? Roddy Piper, same same idea. Um Macho Man was okay in WCW, but I thought he was much better in the WWE. And some I think guys all these the guys, opposite. Yeah. You know? No, they I did do. better in WCW. Dean Malenko did, was, was better in Ming? WCW. Rey Mysterio was better in WWE. Big Show, I think, was better in WWE than WCW. Hakuming was uh, much better in WCW. Who? 
Ricky Aku Ming. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Ricky the Dragon was a world champion WCW. Yeah. Yep. yep. You know. And yet the Road so Warriors good. were on point no matter where they went. <laughs> That's good. We got some spoilers here that just came down. Let's give you this before we uh, take out here. It's what called is this, Hard Down Friday? Friday. No, this is TNA uh, for August 21st. Uh, that's when it's set to debut. Oh, this is what they taped? All right. All right. Yeah, this is what they taped tonight, and it's not airing till the end of the month, uh, basically. Uh, yeah, we'll be watching it. August- we'll be watching that shit on Christmas Eve. Yeah, from next year. Anyway, Gail Kim defeated Velvet Sky and Angelina Love in a three-way TNA knockouts. Uh, they're calling this a stairway to Janice match, and oh, yeah. hmm, Bram, maybe I'm not, B-R-A-M defeated Abyss, so this is basically a ladder match with Janice, uh, a two-by-four covered in nails, hanging above the ring. Uh, and I'm reading this. It was apparently a violent match says the uh, person that wrote in. They also had Ethan Carter the third Rhino, and Rockstar Spud came down. EC3 and Spud attack Rhino and leave him laying and blaming him for allowing 3D to put Carter through the table. Uh-oh. Samoa Joe. This sounds like a good match. Samoa Joe battles it out with Loki and beats him. Um, and an I quit match, Mr. Anderson defeated Samuel Shaw. Uh, Thunder was by ringside for the match. The Hardy Boys came out to talk about getting back together, but then were interrupted by Team 3D. Uh, that was said to be a pretty epic moment when the two big attitude errors started staring each other down until the Wolves came down. Then you had a number one contenders match, uh, Steel Cage, with James Storm versus Bobby Roode versus Gunner versus Eric Young versus Austin Aries versus Magnus. Roode and EY both get out of the cage at the same time, so we have no clear winner. And that's all I have so far. Oh, that so sounds good. Stay tuned. Yeah, definitely sounds good. And uh, since they are in New York, they, they better do a good job of trying to make it look good on TV so somebody picks it up. Yep. So, But we have time for that. Uh, it'll be interesting. I guess next week we'll be leading it to SummerSlam. That's this right. Time, JJ? It's about a week okay, away. Absolutely. August. Uh, 12 days away. Absolutely. And uh, it should be good. So next week we'll have your SummerSlam coverage and uh, all the wrestling scoops you need. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. We will uh, talk again next week. Absolutely. And we'll speak to you tomorrow. Blackjack is in peace. He is... Blackjack. <laughs> he, he, Blackjack, I think, is in at TNA. I'm not sure. 
I think, yes, but he will be on the show next week for sure. Oh, okay. So we cool. will have Black back. Okay, let's leave you with Raw. WWE Raw is War. The, uh, 97. Good night, guys. Good night, everybody.